0: All right, why don't we uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll start here this evening. Father, thank you again for the privilege of looking into this book of Philippians. We pray that we'll be challenged as we think about the example of Christ, the kind of humility he showed. Uh, We pray that the spirit would work in our hearts and minds to create this kind of attitude in our hearts and lives and the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And remember, this is a a section that um, began on um, chapter 2, verse 5, Christ as a model of humility. And we said, why did Paul uh, point to christ here why did he use this particular example or why did he talk about humility first of all and we said that there was a problem of unity in the church and if you're going to have unity paul stresses the need for humility uh, rather than a self-centeredness we need humility if we're going to have unity it's not unity at all costs. it's unity around truth uh, some people will ex- will emphasize unity. We don't want to uni- unify around error. We want to unify around the truth. But even when we unify around the truth, uh, personalities come into effect, you know, and, and so forth. So we want we need humility. So Paul has encouraged that. Remember, back on uh, two one through four and uh, unity, and he's emphasized verse three: Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather than humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, verse 4, but each of you for the interest of others. And so he's, he's emphasized the fact that we should move away from selfish ambition, from self-centeredness, and so forth. And so then he uses Christ as a model of humility. This is 2, 5 through 11, is what we were looking at last time. And so... If you want to try to encourage people to humility, what better example than the example of God incarnate, God becoming human, and then subjecting himself to the kind of degradation and humiliation that Christ was willing to endure. I mean, the big thing today is you're disrespecting me, you know, that's just not allowed. You're not allowed to disrespect me. We've got to have our respect. Well, that's not biblical at all, is it? It's, it's totally contrary to the biblical idea of we have to be willing to shed some of that uh, requirement for that we be respected. So we noticed last time in this uh, section, 2, 5 through 11, we saw Paul's exhortation and then Christ's humiliation, verses 6 through 8. We said that <clears throat> verses 6 through 8, talk about Christ's humiliation, and then in verses 9 through 11 he'll say, as a result of that we had Christ's exaltation. We'll look at that. So we're looking at Christ's humiliation, and I said it was divided into two parts, Uh, two main verbs. He made himself nothing, verse 7, and he humbled himself. That's uh, verse 8. He made himself nothing, and he humbled himself. Um, I um, we looked at uh, the initial statement in 2.6a uh, this is Christ humiliation he humbled himself who being in the very nature God and I started talking about this last time and I, we kind of got into the weeds we got down deep into this a little bit because this is a, a, a very important passage. It has been a very important passage in the history of the church, because it tells us things about Christ, about who He is, about His nature. Now, Paul is—that's not Paul's point here. He's not writing a theology of Christ and telling us about Christ and His nature and so forth. But, but throughout the the, the history of the church the church has tried to work out some details about what the bible teaches about the various members of the godhead and the bible teaches we believe what's called the trinity the trinity means there are three persons in one godhead three personalities in one god so we believe in we call ourselves monotheist now the the uh, the uh, um, Muslims would say we're not monotheists. They believe we have three gods, and we try to insist, Christians try to insist, no, we only believe we have one God. It's hard, it is difficult. We say this is a difficult doctrine, it's hard to understand, but we say that there is one God, one divine nature, one divine nature, but three one substance, but three persons, three persons. It's difficult to understand. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three persons in that trinity. And in the trinity, we say that each person is God. Each person has all the attributes, powers of God. So each person is omnipresent, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, so all the, all the attributes of God are possessed by each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And in the early church, as the church developed, there were false teachings that arose because people were trying to figure this out. They were looking at Scripture. The Bible doesn't, The Bible doesn't come to us as a theological textbook. It comes as these occasional documents like this. We said this is a letter Paul wrote. So in the early church, there were people who had different opinions. We call them, and we talk about them as heresies. One of the earliest ones was a man by the name of Arius. A man by the name of Arius. That's why I've been so, I've been emphasizing or talking about this to a great deal, is because this passage was so important in the early church. There was a man named Arius who was a pastor, a presbyter, an elder. He lived from um, about 256 to 336. And he said that the second person here was not really God. He was not God. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Remember we said that um, John 1, 1 The Word became, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the word, Word was God. And then 1.14, the Word became flesh. And that term Word is a Greek term, logos. And so we say, there was the second person of the Godhead before he became a man. So John 1.14, the Word became flesh. That's what incarnation means. Incarnation means enfleshment. So the second person of the Godhead took upon himself a human nature and became the god man. So when that we that's what we see of Christ on earth the god man. Arius said, no. No. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. His followers are called the Arians. And they were denounced in the early church. There are modern Arians today. Can you think of any modern Arians? What? No. <laughs> That's that's Aryan nation, but right? Huh? Jehovah's Witnesses. So Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. We don't. Nobody might say it, but they're exactly Arians. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They believed exactly what Arius did uh, in the years in the 300s. So, in the early church, the church leaders met together. Many church leaders met together in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea. This is a famous church council. Because here was Arius denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And they came up with a statement called the Nicene Creed. Let me read it to you here. So they came up with this because this is not found in the Bible. You can't turn over to a page and find this statement. They're deducing this from passages like what we're reading here. That's my point. Here's what they said. I believe in one God. See, there's monotheism father almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and visible and one lord jesus christ the only begotten son of god you remember that creed you were saying (laughs) the only begotten son of god begotten the father before all the worlds god of god light of light very god of very god now they can't say it much more they've said it about ten times that the son is god haven't they (laughs) Light of light, very God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, made being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. For, un, for us, who for us, for our salvation came down from heaven, was made incarnate and so forth. He goes on, they go on to state this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father, who is with the Father and the Son together is worship and glorified as spoken by the prophets and so forth. They have a statement. So they, they were trying to combat Arius and his false teaching that he denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And in denying that, they came up with this, what's called the Nicene Creed. And, and obviously, you were in a church that recited the Nicene Creed. There's a lot of churches, every Sunday, recite the Nicene Creed. It's a basic kind of creed of Christianity. This church believes in the Nicene Creed. You may never recite it, but you believe in that. Everybody believes, every Orthodox Christian believes in the Nicene Creed. So my point in saying all this was that they used sta- they used facts like we're reading here, like verse six a, who being in the very nature God. So as to his very nature, his substance, he was God. He was a different person, the Son. Now Paul's really talking about humility, but we're in deducing important facts, uh, you know, from what Paul is saying here. Then we noticed uh, two six b. Who did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. There's been a lot of discussion about how to translate this. I'm reading from the NIV twenty eleven. This is a, this, this is a very good translation. I think they've got it exactly right. He didn't consider equality, he was equal with God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. In other words, he might have said, theoretically, no, I'm not going down to that cross and dying on that cross. I'm God. I don't have to I don't have to do that, you know. He didn't consider it something to use for his own advantage. And I say here, one can't take advantage of something you don't have. So he had equality with God, Paul. He was equal with God, but yet he didn't consider that to his own advantage. Then Christ's voluntary act positively stated, 2-7. That's where we were at last time, finished up. Rather, he made himself nothing. And that's where we talked about that kenosis last time, because that word, the, the literal, is he emptied himself, remember? But I said this is used figuratively in the sense of we say this person we shouldn't say, but we say this is that's an empty headed thought or as in, you know, we mean we don't mean you don't have any if you say somebody if you if you said to somebody you're empty headed, we don't mean you don't have anything in your head. It's it's a figure of speech for you you're not smart, you're you're dumb or you're stupid. So this is this is how it's translated Bro, here. You told me I was empty headed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> empty what? Oh, dumb or stupid, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it means, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> You're empty-headed. <laughs> <laughs> so he made himself nothing. So it's a figure of speech. It's a figurative of way of, of talking about humility. We're talking about Christ. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he took upon himself the idea of a servant... He took upon himself humanity. That's what we talked about, John 1, 1, John 1, 14. He was incarnate. He took upon himself humanity. And then verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I say Paul picks up the reality of the incarnation. Remember, the incarnation is his enfleshment, He's becoming a man. He picks up the reality and spells out how Christ behaved while in the form of a servant. So Christ, having fully identified himself as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the utmost limit. So he was willing to become obedient by becoming a man so he could die on the cross, and he humbled himself to the utmost limit even to the point of death. As I say, just as, the, just as the clause in verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant, is expanded and explained by the next clause, being made in human likeness. So here in verse 8, the clause becoming obedient to death is expanded upon by the next phrase, even death on the cross, indicating what kind of death Christ suffered. So when Paul says he even was willing to die on the cross, he even took the death of a cross, That would be very meaningful, especially to the Philippians. Remember, these Philippians are Romans. They are Roman citizens. And no Roman citizen was was allowed to be crucified. Crucifixion was was reserved for non-Romans. And so tradition says that when Paul, we said, we think Paul, after he got out of house arrest, out of prison in Acts 28, he had a fourth missionary journey. History says he was taken back to Rome and executed with his head cut off. But he couldn't be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. So so these, these this would be especially a, un, understandable to these Romans to think about. It's it's hard to, for us to think about what crucifixion means because we have so much Christianity associated with it. But, but, but crucifixion was the most humiliating, awful thing you could imagine. It's just despicable. It's just reserved for the worst criminals, you know. We, we people wear crosses. They have crosses on their... Well, nobody in the first century went around with a cross on. No Christian in the first century went around with a cross on because it would be like going around with a with an emblem of a, of a gas chamber or something or an electric chair on. You know, that's just, we don't... The electric chair is the most humiliating kind of thing. Well, that's what that meant to these people. That's just despicable. You mean, and you can see why why Christianity would nat- naturally not be appealing. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 1. He says it's foolishness because to the natural person, why would you believe in a person who was crucified? I mean, that's like believing in some guy who was put to death in prison in Texas or something, you know, and, and executed. Would, why would you believe in a person like that? That's the, I mean, He must have been the worst kind of criminal if he was put to death by crucifixion. Well, Paul is using that to show that he endured something you as Philippians would never have to endure. He endured this death, even a cross kind of death, even death on a cross. Well, that's design, and rightly should cause us to, you know, when we get all up in ourselves and <laughs> think we're not getting our dues and we're not getting our respect, look at Christ himself, God himself, what he was willing to endure. Then we see Christ's exaltation, verse 23, therefore, so therefore, you know, in light of this willing to humiliate himself, become a man, die on the cross, therefore God exalted him, we're probably talking about the Father here, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So as I say here, God the Father is now... Presented as decisively intervening and acting on his son's behalf. Jesus' self humbling reached the absolute depths in his most shameful death on the cross. But now, he says, therefore, but now God has exalted him. So, normally, a person who has been crucified, you would think that's just the scum of the earth, that's nothing. But but now God exalted this one who was treated as the scum of the earth because God rightly exalted him, Paul says, because he really wasn't the scum of the earth. He didn't really die for his own sins. He he wasn't crucified because of anything he did. It was the sins of others, as we know. So this, Paul says, God has now vindicated and shown his approval of Jesus' self-humbling. God approves of this. The Father has exalted him to the higher station, it says, to the highest place. And it says, has bestowed upon him a name above all other names and given him the name that is above every name. What name is that? You might think verse 10, from verse 10, it says, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You might think that that's the name that he has given him. But I'm going to argue that that is not the case, that that's not what's going on. As I say in the next paragraph, in view of the chronological pattern exhibited in this passage, the giving of the name must have been subsequent to the cross. This would appear to be sufficient to rule out the identity of the name as being Jesus. In other words, he came to earth. He was born of a virgin. Remember, the angel said to his mother, his name shall be called Jesus. So he was given the name Jesus from his birth while he was a servant here on earth. But he, now he was after his death as Jesus, the Messiah, he's been exalted and given a new name, given another name. And what name is that? Well, I think we'll see when we get to um, um, verse uh, 11 here that this name is Lord. He's been given the name Lord along with all that means uh, all that all all that's pent up in that and that means Um, when he says he's been given the name Lord it's it's saying it's saying he's been given the name of God that's used in the Old Testament Um, if you if you look at your Bibles any Bible um, any modern Bible if you look at the Old Testament You'll notice that they have two ways to write the word Lord when it's talking about God. Two ways. That is, sometimes you'll see it spelled all capitals like that, Lord, and sometimes it's spelled with a capital L and small O-R-D. That's because these are actually different words in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that, this is, um, this is actually a personal name like Bill or John or Mary. It's, it's, it looks like it's a title, Lord, but it's not really. It's actually a personal name. And it's the name Yahweh, or at least we think it is. Sometimes it's translated Jehovah. In the Old Testament... Uh, This is what it looks like in Hebrew. Hebrew is written from right to left. This is Y-H-W-H. And I say Yahweh because Hebrew is written, Hebrew is written, uh, can be written without vowels. Hebrew was originally written without vowels. That seems impossible. How can you have a language that's written without vowels? Well, Semitic languages like Hebrew can be written without vowels. And Hebrew was originally written, the, ma- the oldest manuscripts and everything have no vowels in them, really. Um, in fact, if you go to Jerusalem today and pick up the newspaper, Hebrew is on the newspaper has no vowels in it. Uh, Hebrews um, modern Israelis, they can read Hebrew perfectly well without any vowels. They can just read the consonants. It seems impossible to us. But all the, everything that's needed is contained mainly in the vowels and the, the consonants, the consonants just kind of tell how to pronounce it. They distinguish sometimes like participles from adjectives and things like that. But the problem with all that is because we only have the consonants called the tetragamaton, tetra-four, gamaton, four, four letters, we don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Most modern scholars think it should be pronounced something like Yahweh. So you hope you Yahweh. you'll hear people say Yahweh. You might read in a book somewhere, Yahweh. Uh, At one time, it was pronounced like Jehovah, so even the King James has occasionally the word Jehovah, like in Exodus 6 and other things. Well, that Jehovah is the same as this capital Lord. So, when the Jews, uh, remember the commandment says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So, Jews, when when they read their Bible, and they came across... This name. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. It was talking about this tetragamaton, Y H W H. Don't take that in vain. So, the way they stopped from taking it in vain was they didn't pronounce it. So, when they read the Bible and they got up, they would not pronounce Yahweh. They wouldn't say Yahweh. They don't today. If you go to the synagogue and they get out the Torah and they read that, they don't pronounce that name. They'll say something else, they'll say, like, the name. Or something like that. Early, early, the earliest changes they made is they used a different word. They used the word here, Adonai. Adonai means just Lord. You know, just L-O-R-D, Master. Something like that. So they would say Adonai. They don't even say that in the synagogue today. They say the name or something like that. They won't even say that. If you ever look on the internet sometimes at a Jewish site, they, they won't even write out the word God. Look at sometimes a Jewish site on the internet. Look at somebody who's a Jew's blogging or something. They'll say like, like that. They won't even put the O in there. They're just so reverent. They just, <laughs> they won't even say God. They'll say G like that, D or something like that. They'll use some sort of thing. So they're taking that to an extreme, you know. When God said, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, he didn't mean don't pronounce it, but the rabbi said, you know, if you don't say it, you can't take it in vain in a sense, you know, so you just don't say it. My point of all that is, this is the word Yahweh. When you look in your King James, your NIV, any Bible, they've adopted the same practice that the Jews did. They didn't write the name, except a few times, the King James has Jehovah sometimes. Now there's a Bible called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You ever heard of the Holman Christian Standard Bible? It's a Bible produced by the Southern Baptist Convention. They are restoring that in their translation. If you pick up a Holman Christian Standard Bible, you'll find Yahweh bunches of times. Look through the Old Testament, you'll see Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. They have restored that about 900 times, putting the actual. So it's actually God's name. Now there's another word translated Lord in the Old Testament and that's that word I just talked about. That's the word Adonai which just means Lord. (laughs) So it's it's a little confusing because this is a real title. Lord is a title. It's a title. It's not a name. It's not a person's name. This is a real name like Bill or John or Mary. This is a name. This is a title. So in the Old Testament we have both of these. Now when we get to the New Testament they didn't have that. They just had one word, the word kurios. And so it's just in the New Testament, L-O-R-D. That has to function for both of these. So when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, they just use kurios for both of these, Lord. And so that's my point here when we get to what we're saying here. When when I'm saying he's giving him the name Lord, because we see that in verse 10 and at every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. What, he's, what Paul is saying here, he's identifying Christ with Yahweh, with God in the Old Testament here. That's the, the point I'm trying to make too. He's identifying Christ. He's exalted Him and given Him the name that God has, Yahweh. In fact, most would say, when you read about Yahweh in the Old Testament, you're reading about the Trinity. The Old Testament doesn't, doesn't uh, f- uh, flesh out the Trinity. It doesn't talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It just talks about God, doesn't it? That's why Jews are monotheist. The Trinity is not clearly revealed. There are some hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it's not clearly spelled out like it is in the New Testament. So the term Yahweh can refer to the Father, the Son. It can refer to all members of the Trinity. It's just a name, a God's name, God's personal name in the Old Testament. And my point here is to say when Paul is saying he gives him the name I'm going to argue here that he's really giving him the name Lord which to the, to people who know the Old Testament is referring back to Yahweh identifying with himself here. So I say in that next paragraph in view of the chronological pattern exhibited that is the chronology Christ is incarnate he becomes a servant now he's exalted then this name is given after the cross, after he's already Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now he's given this name. It would appear to be that this name is not Jesus. He's already got that name. So I'm saying the more likely identification is Lord, which is equivalent to this Yahweh here. And that's supported by what I just read there in verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the New Testament talks about this exaltation quite a bit. For instance, uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 um, in verse 33, remember in Acts chapter 2, that's the day of Pentecost, you remember there, and Peter gets up to speak on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he says in verse 33, um, he says, exalted to the right hand of God, He's talking about Jesus. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. So there is that same thing that Paul's talking about. Uh, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, David said in the Psalms, in Psalm um 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at at my right hand. Most people take this Psalm 110 as sort of the father speaking to the son. The Lord said to my, this is David talking. David is saying, Here's what David David is saying. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Christ is exalted. He's now at the right hand of the Father. And he says, set there until I finish this whole plan of salvation in the church age, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all I mean I don't know are you look if you, if you see verse 36 there interestingly enough it says the lord said to my lord the lord said to my lord but if you look in Psalm one ten one, it says the lord said to my lord uses two different words there. It uses Yahweh here. Yahweh says to my Lord, the Messiah. It's actually two different words, but the New Testament can't do that. So it just uses one word, kurios, and that's why we don't have that uppercase spelling there in the New Testament here. But if you look at the one Psalm 110, you'll notice you've got that uppercase all the way there. But notice what he says here in verse 36. Therefore, Peter says, let all Israel... Be assured that of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. So he's been exalted. He was always God. Nothing has changed. He didn't become greater God, bigger God, or anything like that. But he's given this higher status. God has given honor and exaltation and glory to Christ. He was his servant. Now he's been exalted to this highest place. Is what Paul is arguing here in this um, verse. Let me get this back to where we are here Christ Exaltation. Um, so, verse 10. Uh, he's giving him a name that's above every name. Verse 10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that jesus is the lord to the glory of god the father the purpose that that word that indicates purpose or result of christ's exaltation is that all beings bow in acknowledgement of the name of jesus and confess that jesus is the lord i say here because verse 10 indicates that it is at the name of jesus every knee should bow it might appear that the name given in verse 9 is Jesus instead of Lord as was recognized. But I've said I don't think that's the case because remember he already had the name of Jesus. The solution to that problem is probably found in recognizing as the result of this exaltation the man Jesus comes to be acclaimed as Lord. So Paul is simply saying as a result of this exaltation people now when they hear the name Jesus, or at this time, there is coming a time when, at the name of Jesus, when they hear that name Jesus, then every knee will bow and every on earth and and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, which is, I think, what God has exalted with Him to to Him at this time. So, at the name of Jesus, who is in fact Lord, every knee shall bow. I say. Since it's generally rational beings who would be thought of as offering homage and making confession, verse 11, every tongue acknowledged that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. This would probably include angels in heaven, men on earth, the dead in Sheol, that is the place of the dead or hell. Because of what the name of Jesus represents, a time is coming when every knee shall bow before Him in recognition of His Sovereignty submission will be expressed not only by bending the knee but also by verbal confession. Now this doesn't imply universal salvation. Paul is not saying there's a coming a time when everybody's going to believe on Jesus and be born again. He's not saying that. He's just saying that there is coming a time when particularly this will be at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, you remember when all the people in hell will be brought out of hell and they'll be brought before the great white throne. Paul is saying there's coming a time when they will be forced to bow to the sovereignty of uh, that, that forced to recognize that he is Lord. They don't, you know, they don't, they didn't recognize it here on earth. They didn't accept Christ as Savior. They didn't accept him as Lord and so, and ultimately. But this ultimate confession that Jesus is Lord is indication that that's the name that is granted to Jesus following the cross that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord so people at the great white throne the mass of unsaved people who don't didn't recognize it and don't recognize it will be by divine requirement forced to acknowledge even though they don't like it uh, they will be forced to acknowledge that yes they will see it they will be at the great white throne they will acknowledge that this is Christ there at the great White Throne judging them he will be there. remember the father judges no one he's committed all judgment of the Son so Christ will be there at the great White Throne judging these people they will be forced to realize yes, this man that we despised and so forth, this Jesus is Lord, he is God and uh, and they will be forced to recognize that even though they're in a in a non-regenerate state, even though their hearts have not been changed, they'll be facing reality there of the great white throne and be forced by God to bow the knee and to Jesus as the sovereign of the earth. All right. Um, I mean, this is this is, I was going to say, this is talked about quite a bit in other passages. I was going to read something here from, I think that's that's uh, Isaiah 45, talks about this, this kind of thing. Uh, I think it might be helpful. Isaiah 14, 18 through 25. Here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 14, 18. For this is what the Lord says, and this is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is what Yahweh, Isaiah 45, 18, Isaiah 45, 18. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inherited. He says, I am the Lord. Now that's capital L, capital O, capital R. I am Yahweh. And there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, send me and seek me in vain. I am, The Lord, I, Yahweh, seek the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come and assemble you fugitives from the nations, ignorant and those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods and cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it and let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past. Was it not I, the Lord? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. And there is none but me. Truth, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered it all in integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, in Yahweh alone are deliverance and strength, and you have raged against him. You will come to him and be put to shame. So... Isaiah is reflecting on that same day when all the earth will have to confess in this great confession that, that uh, in fact, Christ is Lord. He is God. He is Yahweh. All right. Let's look at uh, Christ exaltation, verses 9. Uh, I'm sorry. Christ, um, I'm sorry. Verse 12. Uh, exhortation to Christian obedience. I say here, the connection between the previous section and the surrounding context is made clear by verse 8, which emphasized Christ's humility. As we noted before, Paul had previously exhorted the Philippians to humble-mindedness in verse 3. If you're going to have unity, you've got to have humble-mindedness. Paul's reference to the second self-humbling of Christ in verse 8 is also described in in that verse as an act of obedience. He became obedient to death, You remember. So that humility involved obedience. This concept is now picked up in verse 12 and becomes the central thrust of 12 through 18. So humility of Christ and that involved obedience to God. He was willing to come to earth. And now Paul's going to pick up on that idea of of obedience in this exhortation to Christian obedience. Verses 12 through 18 can be divided into three sections. In verses 12 through 13... Paul gives a general exhortation and encouragement for the Philippians to lead obedient lives. So he starts off with a general exhortation. I call that the believer's work, but it's talking about the fact that we should be obedient in our lives. Verses 14 through 16, Paul follows up with a more specific instruction to avoid dissension in the church. So he comes back to this idea of uh, of unity based on humility, and, this, and then um, and finally in verses 7 to 18, Paul concludes with an appeal to his own ministry. So let's look first of all at this encouragement for the believers, the Philippians, to lead obedient lives. Verse 12, I just characterize this as talking about the believer's work. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Remember the obedience of Christ. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I say here, therefore, the word therefore in verse 12, links Paul's exhortation in the following verses with the example of Christ in 2, 6 through 11. The main thought of 12 through 13 is the imperative, the command, imperative of Continue to work out your own salvation. So the main idea Paul tells the Philippians here is continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is probably a more specific way of expressing the idea of obedience in the phrase, you have always obeyed. So my dear friends, you've always been obedient. He's being gracious and kind to the Philippians here. They're generally a pretty good church, as we said. They have been obedient. There's not... He, didn't, he wouldn't write this to the Corinthian church, did he? You have always obeyed. He didn't write it to them, you know, he didn't feel comfortable, but he writes it to them here. And what does he mean by you have always obeyed? As you have always obeyed, now continue to obey. This working out your salvation is a form of obedience. I say here, Paul's exhortation for the Philippians to work out their own salvation might seem to contradict Paul's frequent emphasis that salvation is not procured by one's own works. In other words, if I just took this verse, you know, I could go around and say, Paul says here, work out your own salvation. You know, if we just took this out of the Bible right here. Work out your own salvation. I could do a lot of preaching on this. I could say, you know, I could start a church. In order to be saved, we got to do it, friends. We, God can't do it. We got to do it. We got to work it out. It's not justification by faith, it's justification by works. Here it is right here. It says, work out your own salvation. You've got to do it. See how you, you, could, you could take that out of context. And as I say here, that would seem to contradict on the surface what Paul says, like in Romans 4:5. he says, God saves the one who does not work. God saves, remember, Paul says very clear in Romans He's talking about justification by faith there quite a bit. And he says, God saves the one who does not work. Well, how can he say here, you continue to work out your own salvation? But also notice verse 13. We'll see that in a moment. Paul says, for it is God who works in you. So on the one hand, he says, you need to work. But on the other hand, he says, it is God who works. This expresses what is commonly called the tension, the paradox between what's called divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That is, we believe that God is sovereign in the work of salvation. The Bible is just full of passages and verses that were justified by faith alone, not by works. Paul says there in Romans 4 or 5, He saves the one who does not work. It's not by our good works that we are saved. It's simply trust in Christ. It's the work of Christ that saves us. But on the other hand, Paul says, we have to continue to work out your own salvation. Now, he's not talking, he didn't say, work out your justification. (laughs) You don't work out your justification. But we do participate in our sanctification. So we have to separate here now the initial justification and regeneration which are God's work alone we don't have any part in that faith is the gift of God that's done by God and our continuing sanctification or spiritual growth and there we do have a part to play we do participate and so um sometimes theologians use terms here like monergism and synergism you ever heard of those terms monergism and synergism um so we, they will say, it, it comes from, um, this part just means work or energy, force, uh, will. So mono means there's one will, there's one force, there's one, one will involved. And so we say regeneration is monergistic. People will use that term, monergistic. Because in regeneration, God causes us to be born again. God births us again. We don't don't do anything. God simply uh, gives us new life. He imparts new life to us. That's monergistic. It's justification. That's monergistic. God does it. But when we get to... After that, we get to sanctification, our spiritual growth. Some theologians will use the term synergistic. That is, we have, we have a cooperation. Now, where I teach in the seminary, Dr. McCune taught there for years. He hated, he didn't like that word synergistic. Some theologians use the word participation. I don't know if you've ever seen anything about R.C. Sproul. He's a famous theologian. He's written a lot of books and he's on the web and stuff. He uses the word synergistic. It's common. Some people use the word participation. So we do cooperate. We do have to work out our sanctification. We have a part to play. We just can't sit in the chair and do nothing. We have to read the Bible. <laughs> we have to understand the Bible. That that's, takes work. That takes human endeavor. It takes a, a human will. So it's synergistic or it's participation. We have, to, we have a part to play here in this, in this thing. So on the one hand, our salvation, God is sovereign. On the other part, we have a responsibility. We have a part to play in our uh, sanctification. And so this exhortation for the Philippians is, continue to work out your salvation. And again, remember, this is the sanctification part. Our justification, you know, is strictly of God. It doesn't come from us, from our conduct. Romans 4, 5, Paul says, God justifies the ungodly. But the biblical concept of salvation is not restricted to justification or regeneration. When we The word salvation is a broad term, remember. And so salvation includes all kinds of So it includes includes justification, uh, regeneration, reconciliation, uh, redemption. I mean, the word salvation is this broad term. Sometimes the word salvation can refer to just one aspect of it or sometimes the whole aspect. Here it's referring to mainly work out your salvation. He's not saying your justification. Work out your spiritual growth. Work out your sanctification is what I'm arguing here. Um, So, um, remember Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, you know, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works. But he goes on in verse nine and ten, you remember, to remember his his uh, is there. Uh, maybe we should just read it rather than uh, might be good to, to refer to it here. We see the same uh, thing we have here. We have divine sovereignty on one side. Paul says in verse 10, he gives us the divine sovereignty side. Because he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fill his good purpose. We have the same thing like in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You remember, Paul says there, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, when he says you have been saved, there he's using the word saved or salvation to refer to the past acts. Justification, regeneration, redemption, reconciliation. That's past. But there's more salvation to come. Remember I said earlier, I said salvation can be used in the past, the present, and the future. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So God has created us to do good works, and that's what Paul is referring to here in um, verse uh, 12 when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, um, so that's that's something we see throughout, scrip- through, throughout Scripture. I say here about with fear and trembling is to be understood as is commonly found in the Old Testament with the idea of having a disposition of obedience to God in light of our weakness. So, you know, it's work out your salvation. But remember, we're dealing with God here. We're just creatures. This is God. And we should approach him with fear and trembling. We should have a holy awe about this. Now, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Here's the divine side. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we saw the divine side first. For by grace you've been saying, it's not of works, you know, less than, but God has created you two good works. There was the human side. Now we see the, we saw the human side first, now the divine side. You can, you can do this because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. I say here, Paul describes the enablement to carry out our sanctification as being furnished by God Himself who produces in believers Both the desire to live righteously and the energy to do so. It's God who works in you both to will, He produces the desire for holy living. So even though we say we must participate in our sanctification, we don't get any credit for that because it's God who works in you to will, He gives you the desire who works in you to will and to act. He gives you the power, the energy to carry out this, sanct- this holiness, this sanctification. So our activity in working out our salvation is possible only because of God's divine grace. God's influence extends both to the act itself, to act, as he says, and to our very wills, to will. So in every... In every uh, action, there's two principal parts, the will and the effective power, the will to do something and the power to do something. That is, you know, we can say, I'm going to drive home tonight. There's the will to do it, and we've got to have the power, the ability to do it. And Paul says both of these remain with God. So he gets the glory for our salvation. He provides the will and the power to do what we do in our Christian lives. I'd say here, the point then of verses 12 and 13 is that while sanctification requires conscience, effort, and concentration, we've got to study our Bibles. We've got to listen to sermons. We've got to be obedient. We've got to take steps that, you know, we have to do this. Uh, We have to participate. So, so it requires conscience effort and constant our activity takes place not in a legalistic spirit with a view to gaining God's favor, but rather in a spirit of humility and thanksgiving, recognizing that without Christ we can do nothing, and so he alone deserves the glory. John Murray, in his book Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, says it all offers this summary. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work. Nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship strictly one of cooperation as if God did His part and we did ours so that the conjunction or coordination of both produce the required result. God works and we also work. I pray, but God is the one who's providing the impetus and the power to pray. God works and we also work, but the relationship is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, out our sanctification, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. So this is a great text on this question of divine sovereignty and our responsibility. It's God who works in us to will and to work. God's the one who's in it, but we have to work out our own salvation. We have to participate. We're part of that process of sanctification. All right, why don't we stop here at uh, this point since we're about ready to close, and we'll pick it up here next time, all right?